We're going to start off with a listener question. Sounds good. And I'm going to talk like this to her episode. That seems like a great thing for everyone <laughs> that is a winning strategy. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Vicari. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So Steph, how's your week going? Hey, hey. Uh, it's going really well. I think I'm in, what, week three of sabbatical life, which is marvelous. I did kind of hit that inflection point where I kind of started to feel panicky about the fact that I haven't coded in a while. And even though I'm still keeping up and reading some articles here and there, I did have that moment of like, I, I should really, I should really code something. Uh, so I'm fighting that at the moment, or maybe I'll lean into it. I haven't really decided. And then the other small personal anecdote from the sabbatical is I've reset my caffeine intake, which has been really lovely because I'm now noticing that if I drink too much caffeine, it makes me very angsty. Who would have thought, you know? <laughs> huh. So did you just like slowly drink less and less over vacation? I have. So I'm I'm not someone that usually like does stuff like cold turkey. So I just started whittling down how much I was drinking and then replacing some of my caffeine with something lower like tea instead. And it's really a bit frustrating if you do care about your caffeine intake and then you want to track that. It's really hard to understand how many milligrams or how much caffeine is in a cup of coffee because there's such a wide range. A lot of places quote is like a cup of coffee, which could be eight to 12 ounces is around like 90 milligrams. But then some places like Starbucks or other common chains are anywhere up to like 200 milligrams for a cup of coffee. So it's just like a wild range. So it's been it's been eye opening to realize that yes, it's a drug. Yes, it's uh, one that I enjoy very much. And two, it's really hard to track. Got it. So a drug, you enjoy it, but you are trying to reduce your uh, I'm I'm very much in the same boat, though. I, I drink a lot of coffee and I've thought about reducing it. I don't tend to have any negative effects. Like if I don't drink it at all on the weekend or something, I'm fine. And I've heard from other folks that like they'll get a headache or things like that. And that would be the point where I would start to consider, does coffee sort of own me or do I own coffee? And uh, thus far, it's been OK, but I still like I think I drink two to three strong cups of coffee a day. I try to keep it in the morning. That's a that's a pointed thing that I'm doing as opposed to letting it slip into the afternoon because I definitely have noticed sleep differences there. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, the daily routines. Vacation's a perfect time to reset that. <laughs> Yeah, it's been a nice opportunity to reset certain habits that I have and see which ones that I want to keep. But that's it for me. How's your week going? Uh, week's going well. I have a quick update on a topic that I think we talked about last week, which was Dead Man Snitch, which is the little uh, utility that you can use to ensure that your code is running as expected. And if we're being honest, I sort of installed it as on a whim, not actually thinking anything would happen. And humorously, that feature of my app broke uh, five days later. And it had been running fine for like a year. And specifically what happened was SendGrid has been prodding me for a while to switch to using API keys. But I was ignoring every email that they were sending me, for being honest, because I thought it was about other apps that I actually don't have access to anymore. I've worked on a lot of applications that have SendGrid. I've been on a lot of things that have the SendGrid add-on. It's like, if it breaks, I'll probably find out about it. It's not a big deal. There's nothing that I had access to that I thought it would matter. So I was like, this is fine. I'm just going to ignore it. And then it turns out one day, SendGrid just turned off my access. I needed to rotate to an API key. So I still have access. I just had to switch how I connect. But I wouldn't have known had it not been for the little snitch. So that was a nice little thing. It was nice to sort of round it out. And again, really give me that pointer in the direction of I want to know more about what my app is doing in production. In theory, like Honey Badger or something else, if I had that set up on this little personal app would also have caught it. 
but it was still nice to have very pointedly this thing that happens every day didn't happen. And that type of error message was really useful. But yeah, so that's a quick update on that. The other topic that is, uh, frankly, is sort of a, a preview of weeks to come, but I am in the process right now of upgrading the follower database on one of the applications to the client that I'm working with and getting that to parity with the primary database in preparation for starting into a Rails 6 upgrade, which I am super excited about, partly because I think it'll be interesting to upgrade and see what comes along with it. But two things I specifically know will come along are the ability to use the follower database for get requests. So that would be hopefully a nice performance bump to the app, given that we already have a primary and a follower database. But also this means that I get the button, my favorite button, the button that when you haven't migrated that just appears on the screen and says, do you want me to migrate? Oh, I love that button, uh, but I don't have it on this app. And it makes me sad every time. Every time there's a screen that says, you should do this thing. Why don't you go figure that out, jerk? <laughs> it's not that mean, but... <laughs> what version of Rails are you currently on? Five to whatever, whatever the, I think, leading edge of the five series is, but we're not on six yet. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I, re I remember the joy and enthusiasm over this button, the one that's just like run migrations, and it just runs everything for you. But I, I'm surprised I would have thought that it was available sooner, but I guess I just haven't kept an eye on it. So that's officially available in Rails 6. I believe that is where it was introduced. And Rails 6 has been out for a while. They're on 6.1 now. And I think if I'm understanding correctly, I think they've said they're not going to do a 6.2. They're just going to go to 7. I think I read that. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But regardless, six has been around for a while. And so my excitement about the button was that's like a year. That's more than a year ago now. So cool. Yeah, that's starting to jive now. Well, that's exciting. I'm also intrigued about where you're mentioning that you'll have that access to the feature where you can use the follower database for Git requests. And then you can also use the regular database for everything else. What does that process look like in porting over? Is that you know, just really simple or because I'm also excited about that performance improvement that frankly, I'm not going to share and but I'm excited for you. Well, if we're being entirely honest, like I said, this is sort of a preview, a hint of things to come or things that I'm excited about. So I don't actually know. But my understanding is it is meant to be largely a configuration level thing where you say, just here are two different database connections. And here is the logic by which you can switch them. And so I think my understanding of it is you can say like, at the HTTP request verb level. If it's these verbs, use the follower. If it's these verbs, use the primary. And so any write actions would go to the primary and then any subsequent reads for the rest of that connection, I believe that's how they'll work. But then any reads can go directly to the follower. And I think you can configure it very easily. My understanding is that's the intended usage mode is to do that level of switching. And so I'm, I'm hoping it'll actually be like, here's my follower URL. Please make my app better by using that. And once a write is written to the primary database, and then let's say there's a very quick request right afterwards to then fetch that write or fetch that new data, when is it written over to that follower database? You're asking great questions that I have vague answers to, or vague ideas at least. Uh, my understanding is the way it works is there's the write-ahead log. So the operation of making that update is written to that log and then also to the primary database directly. And so that data actually changes. The follower is trying to keep up as fast as it can and typically is very, very close behind. So it's milliseconds of latency between it being written to the primary and it then subsequently making it into the follower. But I think there is the very small possibility of out-of-sync update the nature of the application that I'm working on, I don't think that would be an issue because if, if you're doing an operation, you're going to write and read back in the same request response lifecycle. And so that data will be atomically correct. And then otherwise, any subsequent reads like the database will keep up otherwise. 
but it is a potential failure motor, like a weird edge case where you're like, the data was just slightly weird and I don't know why. And then I refreshed and then it was fine. So I'm hoping that's not the case, but my belief is that this has been vetted and is a, a thing that's used by large organizations that know what they're doing. So I'm hoping to just sort of build on top of that. Yeah, I imagine it would be rare that someone would see that sort of odd state of the data where they're just slightly ahead of that follower database. But yeah, I'll be intrigued if you hear of anybody running into that on the app. Well, yes, I will certainly update and actually have to do all the work and like upgrade to Rails 6. So hopefully that's nice and easy so that then I can do the fun part and do the database switching. But uh, we will see. I will uh, I will let you know how that goes. And then circling back a bit, uh, when you're talking about how you just add a dead man snitch and then something happened to fail. So that was really convenient timing. How does dead man snitch snitch? How does it let you know that something failed? Is that via email? Like how does that information become apparent? Yep. They send uh, an email notice. So that was I received that email. And then I went and actually looked. They have a dashboard where they show the most recent interactions. And so they'll show that like every day at this time for a bunch of days, we saw an update that said, you know, the job had run correctly. But then today we did not receive it. So now we're alerting you. Uh, they actually have a feature where if you say daily, they'll tell you at the end of the day in UTC time that the thing did not happen. But they have a feature, which I'm actually not sure if I have access to based on being on the free level, but it's smart notifications, which will learn if you're running the job every day at 3 p.m. You can say, like, this is a daily task, and then they'll hone in on that time. So, like, hey, normally this happens at 3 p.m. We haven't seen much variance in that, and it's 15 minutes later, and it hasn't happened. Maybe go look at that. And so you can get much more up-to-date alerts. Right now, it's fine for me that they're once a day sort of thing, and it gave me plenty of time to catch up. But yeah, it's just an email. But that that was plenty. That works for me. Although it is interesting, like who snitches on them if they like now they're a trusted aspect of it. But at some point, somebody's got to be in charge, I guess. It's not me. Who snitches on the snitch? Yeah, that's a nice feature because I could see how there could be like a very important task that runs at a specific time of day and you don't want to wait till perhaps like the next morning to find out that it failed. Really cool. Really cool stuff. And now a quick break to hear from today's sponsor, Scout APM. SpotCon 2021 is the latest digital conference for developers from around the world to discuss, collaborate, and learn about leading edge technology and performance, observability, and transformation of application development. At Scout APM's inaugural digital conference, they are focused on creating the best community event for developers by offering informative sessions presented by industry-leading experts. To keep their promise to this mission, they are excited to announce Yukihiro Matsumoto, commonly known as Mats, as this year's SpotCon keynote speaker. Join hundreds of developers on March 26th for this one-day virtual event. Get your free ticket and view the full speaker list at scoutapm.com slash spotbikeshed. All one word, S-P-O-T-B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D. Scoutapm.com slash spotbikeshed. Thanks again to Scout for sponsoring today's episode of The Bike Shed. So on a slightly different note, we have a listener question that I'm excited for us to dive into. This one's a lot of fun because I feel like I get to read a little bit of your fan mail for you since you shared it with me. And then we're bringing it to the show to discuss. So this question comes from Rob Jewell and Rob wrote in, Hi, Chris, I'm a big fan of your videos on Upcase as well as the Bike Shed podcast. I was wondering if you could share with me what you use when building a website that requires a CMS. Do you go with Refinery because it lets you use Rails? Rob continues to share that WordPress is a popular option for building websites with a CMS, but one main issue they run into with WordPress is the absence of a robust solution for processing background jobs. So Rob is interested in knowing how we approach building CMS. So I have a couple of battle stories that I'm happy to share, but I'm going to kick it over to you first, Chris. 
Oh, I'm intrigued. Battle stories is such a an ominous grouping. But yeah, well, first, uh, thank you, Rob, for the very kind words. Happy that you've enjoyed some of the stuff I've put out into the world. But on the topic at hand, uh, this is actually, I think, a very subtle one. And I've tried a lot of different options. And it unfortunately falls into the I've not found something that I love. There's always trade offs in every one of the solutions. Most common what I end up with is that there's more of a marketing site at the core, so at the root domain of any organization that I'm working with, often that will be a marketing site. And then the actual Rails app that's sort of the the real heart of the, the platform is at app.example.com, if example.com were the organization. So example.com can be like a Squarespace or a Wix or any of the other more directly manageable solutions in that space so that the marketing team or the sales team or whoever it is that's going to sort of own that landing space and, and maybe more of the content they can own that, run with it, and they don't need to bring in the developer team at all. Uh, and I found that that's a good separation, but it really it does beg the question of like if the core thing that we're doing is actually building a content system, then having that separation is actually a little weird, and probably the core application should care about the content. So like Upcase is an example where we were building out lots of content, and so it was a Rails app. We built that as a bespoke Rails app because obviously that's the thing that we do. But yeah, the trade-offs in there, I think the questions around how to manage the CMS, I'm actually interested to hear what your thoughts are, especially as you refer to them as, as battle stories. Do you have any more particular thoughts about that version of it, Steph? I do. I also like how you framed it where there's a separation of is one of the app's primary features around all of that content. And that has been more of my experience. So when I've been working with applications, that is often a big part of the application's job is to provide content. But then we also have a content team that is working to get that information out into the world. So it has often been more of a bespoke process where we have built in that CMS in with the system. I haven't used the exact tool that Rob mentions, Refinery. That's not one that I'm familiar with. Is that one that you've used before? Uh, I don't think so. I've used a lot of the like admin systems, which end up operating as CMSs, so like Rails admin, Active Admin, etc. But I haven't worked with Refinery specifically. Cool. So yeah, in a previous engagement while working with the Boston Transportation Authority, I was working with a small team that was focused on generating pages for public announcements. And the content team needed a way to publish. It was perhaps like event information, important updates, weather advisories, anything that they really needed to publish on the fly and make a new page for. And the team that I was working with, we were using Drupal as a CMS. So content creators could enter content create pages. And essentially, the goal was for us as developers to get out of their way to build support tools for them, but then they could do their job and really not rely on us and also push updates out into the world. So it was a combination of using Drupal as a CMS, and then it was also using Phoenix for a lot of the other features of the site. So for pages with very minimal design, it worked really well. But anytime that we got just like the tiniest bit fancy, it got complicated because we essentially wanted to style all of those pages. And we were working with the Drupal CMS to recognize different types of content blocks because their API serves back the content and a lot of blocks, and you can name those types of blocks. So then based on the type of block, then we were using that information to essentially style that piece of information so it looked good on the page. But anytime we wanted to do something like that, that meant the developers first had to get ahead of that process and build out that block of content. So let's say we wanted to do like a, I don't know, maybe like a people grid or something where we wanted to have a bunch of people and show who's in leadership. So we would first need to implement that into the application, style it. We were also using heavily of a style guide so that way the content team also knew what styles they could rely on and use as they were creating new content. 
And then those two pieces always had to work together. So we always had to be one step ahead before they could start building out those pages. So there was some upfront work before the content team could really just run with it. And it's been a couple years. From what I recall, it wasn't great in working with Drupal as a CMS. There were some niceties to it, but I also remember we struggled a fair amount with it as well. But given that it has been a couple of years since then, I would be intrigued in looking into it again to see how they're doing. I also recall that when we were making that decision, we looked at a couple of other CMS tools as well. I don't know if Prismic was out at this time. Prismic may be a bit more recent than before when I was working on that project, but the team specifically chose Drupal for the fact it has been around for so long and also the cost of it since it is a government site. They were a little nervous about going with a company that was still in that newer CMS space because then if that company went down, suddenly we had a government site that was going to have problems. So they wanted to go with something that was very stable and had been around for a long time. The other cool thing about this, so for folks that are interested in this and they actually want to see it, how it was implemented, the site is public. So you can go to GitHub and then go to forward slash mbta.com. So it's actually the word D-O-T-C-O-M. And you can look at all the code that's there specifically if you are interested in how the CMS is working with Drupal and then rendering those pages in Phoenix, then look within the app CMS directory and you can see how a number of those pages are being implemented. So it's one of those, it was awesome. It gave us a lot of flexibility in terms of how we want to design pages, content, Content creators could essentially build their own page and push that out. That was really neat. But then the downside is we always had to be one step ahead. And we then had to have very explicit sort of like contracts or style guides between this is what the code expects. And then content creators know this is what they have to work with. So there always felt like there was some friction that was there that wasn't great. So another experience that I have working in this type of style where we have our CMS separated from our site, but we are doing that more custom style of pulling in the information is our ThoughtBot website because we have a lot of content that we have there that we want our marketing team to be able to update and push out as they're working throughout the day. But this one, we're using Prismic as the source for where they can enter in the content. And then our ThoughtBot website will then pull that content from Prismic's API and then render it in a way that we like. And I haven't actually contributed through that workflow, but just looking through the code itself, it looks pretty similar to the approach that we took with MBTA in terms that we have specific blocks, and then we're going to have templates that then match those blocks, so then we can style them in a specific way. You'll also notice if you look at like our case studies pages, if you're looking at that from like a designer's perspective, it looks very similar from each case study to the other with different content. So that has also helped in terms of where we can create the sort of structured format that then works with the CMS and with the rendering portion. But it still comes down in my mind to there's still that bit of friction where you still have to be one step ahead of the CMS so that way you can render it appropriately. And then also documentation feels so important in this space because you need these two teams to collaborate. There's still like, I think like you said earlier, I haven't found a solution that I love, but this one does seem to work really well for our team. Yeah, I similarly uh, haven't actually worked on the ThoughtBot.com site, but I sort of observed from afar as the rewrite was happening because for a while it was just a Rails app and I think had more traditional or CMS-y type things. But then the extraction out to Prismic to manage that worked really well and then still gave full flexibility and control to the designers as they were building out the individual pages. That structure seems like it works really well. There's actually another piece of the ThoughtBot.com website that I find really interesting, which is the fact that 
Upcase and the Thoughtbot blog previously were separate domains, separate subdomains of Thoughtbot.com. And then historically, those have both been folded in. And so now if you're a visitor coming to Thoughtbot.com, not that users care as much, Google cares more about this, but Thoughtbot.com was a distinct Rails application doing its own thing. Upcase.com, that was its own separate Rails application. And then robots.thoughtbot.com, that was the Thoughtbot blog. And the way it works now is thoughtbot.com slash upcase serves the upcase Rails app. And thoughtbot.com slash blog serves the thoughtbot blog as a separate Rails app. And then there's still thoughtbot.com, its own Rails app. And the way that's all working is we're using Fastly as a proxy in front of everything. And so as a request comes in, Fastly will inspect it, look at the path that folks are trying to get to, and then determine, does this go to the primary application? Does this go to the upcase app? Or does this go to the blog app? And then it'll do nice caching things on top of that, but it gives this unified experience, sort of consolidates everything into a single domain, which anecdotally, when we did that for Upcase, we saw a nice bump in the traffic. And then that inspired, I think it was a year later or so, similar work with the blog to move that in. And that similarly saw a nice boost in traffic. So Google seems to care about these things. They tell us we're allowed to use subdomains as much as we want, but the results speak differently. And that that's an interesting one where the simplest technical thing is just to have those like they're each separate applications they want to vary independently but for content reasons we actually want them all to be collected together and so this proxy setup was actually a solution to that problem we have a blog post on the thoughtbot.com blog which again is at thoughtbot.com slash blog now and we'll include a link to that but it's about hosting and going through fastly and proxy setup it is interesting to me in the way that like there's technical answers that we can give to this question, but almost always these things come back to what's the actual problem that we're trying to solve? Who are the users? In this case, users are like the content team that needs to look at it, but also Google apparently is a user and then readers of the blog or readers of whatever content site. And so we end up having to take into account all of these different constituents and make a choice that works well. And again, I think the easiest one is to just put the app on a separate subdomain. If it's going to have authenticated content, that sort of thing, that's a nice, easy option. The marketing team can own their own thing, run that in a WYSIWYG content editor sort of thing, and everybody gets the easiest option there. But then I think the other two that we've talked about, like the headless CMS thing is a nice middle ground. And then this proxying thing being a third option to sort of bring it all together. Interestingly, I think both of us seem to be leaning in the direction of not using an integrated gem or engine or something within the core Rails app. That would be my personal leaning because I find they just don't feel quite right. They feel like a bolt-on solution as opposed to for the content team. I want to make sure they have a great authoring experience. And I think having a service or a platform that is focused entirely on that, like a Prismic or a Contentful or any of the others, or Drupal, like you said, or WordPress, any of those I think will probably provide a slightly better experience. That's my sense, but I could see that going either way. So I'm just sort of naming what seems to be the direction that both you and I are heading in with this. Yeah, it feels like one of those spaces where a team starts to consider like, how can we rebuild email or forms or any of those spaces? And it's like, well, other teams have spent a lot of time getting this right and making it a great experience for others and build a business on this, because it's a very important product, and it's not easy to get it right. So I think that's why I specifically lean into existing services for this type of product. Because like you said, I want that content team to have a really great experience. And if us as developers, if we're going to rebuild that product for them, that is going to be a far larger investment than we probably want to make. 
So am I correct in understanding what you just said, that you've never rebuilt forms in any of the systems or form builders in any of the uh, applications that you've worked on? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, have I successfully avoided that? I think we were on a project together where we had to do that. Yeah, but I feel like it was minimal. Like, I can't remember how far down the rabbit hole we went. Like, I feel like it was one of those, like, we built a basic form. And then as soon as it started getting more complex, that then it became a question of like, should we keep going down this path? Or have I completely rewritten history? It always starts simple. Uh, my <laughs> recollection of the particular anecdote that I'm thinking of is it was reasonably constrained, but it did end up being a generic form builder and generic answer system and some JSON-B columns and some blobs of data and some transformers and things. And I believe we did not succeed in preventing that technical implementation from coming into existence. And again, sometimes that can be the right choice, but I think the way you're framing it of let's just make sure we're not building something that someone else their entire product and company exists around because probably we can we can use them. That said, that does sort of contradict some of my thoughts about service-oriented architecture. So I'm sort of talking in circles here. <laughs> Circling back just a bit, because you'd mentioned the rewrite that we we're going through for the ThoughtBot website, which I think initially we called it like a redesign, but then the team moved away from that phrasing because it felt like this one big done once in a lifetime kind of redesign moment, but we really want it to be a bunch of incremental changes. So I think we moved away from that particular language. But there's a really cool workshop that's hosted by Lindsay Christensen, our chief marketing officer, and Kyle Fielder, our chief design officer. As a fun name, it's called There's a Typo on the Homepage. And they focus on all the different steps that the team went through in updating our website. And they also speak specifically around doing that sort of like content review, improving accessibility, refining brand consistency. And one of the blurbs for the workshop that I love talks about how to update content quickly without kidnapping developers, which ultimately the phrasing is really funny, but it does feel like the thing that I'm looking to build. Like I want to build something and then get out of the marketing team or the content team's way so that they have a great experience and they can publish as they want. So we'll drop a link for that into the show notes for anyone that's interested. I believe it's far more design and brand heavy, but I think there's some technical bits in there as well for folks that are interested. So we've discussed a number of ways to integrate with a CMS. It seems like you and I mostly favor leaning into these external services since that has worked well for us in the past and then taking into some of those SEO concerns. On that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bike Shed or reach me at S. Vicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.